I really had to take the diagnosis in stride and start to be more responsible and analytical about how I was going to manage living with this condition while still accomplishing my dreams and goals. Knowing is better than not knowing. And I feel strongly that by my knowing what I was going to be living with, it really enabled me to navigate the world despite any of the challenges that may come my way. Everyone has a story to tell, and we invite you to join us for the Multiple Sclerosis Diagnosis Journey podcast and listen to these unique stories. Greetings. This is Laura Koloskowski, and I welcome you to the MS Diagnosis Journey podcast. I'm here with Rihanna Robinson, and she's going to be our guest today. Thank you for having me join your podcast series this morning. It's, it's my pleasure to be able to share some more about my MS journey. So I can tell you that my diagnosis stage took place almost 30 years ago when I was only 19 years old. And I had been tested with an MRI to determine why I had such bizarre numbness and tingling from my abdomen down to my feet. And I was very, very upset and quite beside myself for a number of months, not knowing what was going on with me. Um, at this particular time in my life, I had taken a year off of university and saved a lot of money to travel around Europe. I had bought a plane ticket and a Eurorail pass. And in the midst of that was flown from my small town in northern BC down to Vancouver, British Columbia which is a, a, a central city in southern British Columbia, for um, an MRI. And I was told very quickly, um, within a few days, over the phone from a doctor that was in another small community. I live very remotely, so the access and availability of neurologists and um, medical health professionals generally can be limited at times. And within my diagnosis experience was no different. So the doctor told me over the phone that evidence demonstrated I had MS. And I was quite beside myself again, just not really knowing what was facing me. I was advised to cancel my trip to Europe, which was an utter devastation for me in my life at that time. I was going to be doing it by myself, and I was so excited to be taking this strong leap solo and accomplishing some travel I had dreamed of and that so, so many of my other friends were doing. So I um, really had to sort of take the diagnosis thereafter in stride and start to be more responsible and almost analytical about how I was going to manage living with this condition while still accomplishing my dreams and goals. Because ultimately, I, like I mentioned, I had just taken a year off of university and going to university and having a professional career was always one of my, my significant ambitions in my life since I was a very young girl. So I did finish taking that year off university. I did not go to Europe and I returned to university the next year and I've since done more degrees, ultimately eventually completing a PhD 
And now I'm a professor at a university in Prince George, British Columbia, um, in the Department of First Nation Studies. And I'm really so grateful and so humbled to have such tremendous opportunities that I've now integrated my, my health realities, my mobility limitations into my own research trajectories. And thinking back to the diagnosis phase, I couldn't have ever imagined this becoming a possibility for me. But of course, as I became older and just more confident in myself and not so ashamed of the illness that I was living with and the disability accumulation that I present, I have been able to realize that there are significant opportunities still available to me and to the, the, you know, the communities that I'm, that I'm proud to be a part of. So I, I just will say really quickly, I'm an Indigenous female of Métis ancestry, and my research area has really moved from Indigenous education to focusing on Indigenous disability and Indigenous perspectives of difference and differently abled peoples. And this is a very largely understudied area of research and scholarship. So I feel, again, this is another space where I'm feeling tremendously fortunate to be able to find an opportunity to not only talk about multiple sclerosis, but talk about the realities of how we have to be looking at our experiences in ways where we can really celebrate the gifts that it can be bringing us inadvertently. So I have been doing that wholeheartedly. And like I said, I'm really proud to do so. Yeah, I was just going to say, I have to say your story captures my attention for a number of reasons. But one is that we know that people in Canada have a much higher incidence rate of uh, multiple sclerosis than perhaps Southern climes. And we also know very little about Indigenous people and their incidence of MS. So it's, it's a juxtaposition of we know a lot about Canadians, but we don't know a lot about select populations within Canada itself. Absolutely. And, you know, from a, a data-informed place and positioning, I think, you know, there are gaps in terms of accumulated information in that regard. And I, you know, I'm also a mother of two, of two children. And, you know, I feel like while we still don't know so much about MS, we still don't know so much about those diagnosed with it and their experiences of living with it. And I think that there is this, um, there's this immense spectrum that really deserves intentional and consistent attention. I mean, I'm always surprised when I meet people that don't know what MS is to this day, because it is very common in Canada. In fact, in the small town I grew up in, it was even more common. It was just extraordinarily prevalent. And I feel like capturing the spectrum of MS um, from the diagnosis, who lives with it and their experiences therein, there's a lot of important stories to still be told and a lot of ways that we can be captivating the public to really fold in some, you know, stronger um, pathways of understanding, empathy and support. Now, thinking back when you were 19 years old, were you familiar with MS or did you know anyone that had multiple sclerosis? I was very familiar with MS. Like I mentioned, the small town I grew up in, 
um, MS was a prevalent condition. And as soon as I was experiencing my first symptoms, I remember I walked into my parents. I said, my, my, my legs are tingling. And my sister immediately said, that's like one of the first symptoms of MS. You know, so it's something that, you know, I wasn't naive to. I would, I've been fully well, well aware of, but it didn't make it any less um, frightening for me. And I mean, I felt like I was much younger than the, the, than the people I knew living with it. And I was much younger. Yeah. So it, what's interesting in your story, Rihanna, is that you knew people that had MS and you saw that in your community where so many people I've talked to, they were the first that saying, I knew absolutely nothing about MS. And I knew no one who had multiple sclerosis until I was diagnosed. And then all of a sudden I began connecting with others who have this condition as well. So your experience is kind of very different than what I'm hearing from other people. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, no, MS was um, something that I had known about since I was very young, I'm going to say. Um, I don't have any other family members with it. I have no history of it in my family at all. I really feel that there are some, again, I'll go back to that, my comment about the data, like the absence of particular pockets of data and it's it's an interesting phenomenon to consider where and why MS prevalence, there's a higher incident rate in certain communities. And you're right, in Canada, it is very common. So because of this, getting your diagnosis of MS obviously didn't sound like it was a surprise, although it was stunning to you to hear. And it didn't take you long to get tested for it either, it sounds like. Do you remember what tests they put you through for this diagnosis? Well, I actually would say that it did take me a while to get tested. I started experiencing my first symptoms over a year previous to my diagnosis. It was when I was in my first year of university. And I remember visiting the hospital in the Prince George, the community that I that I still live in now. And they couldn't quite figure out why I'd be having these unusual symptoms. And they kept saying, you know, you're too young for this and you're too young for that. And um, so then I and then I went back to back to my home community for the summer and I started having other bizarre symptoms. So I actually didn't get tested immediately. I think the impending travel of me going by myself around the world <laughs> expedited um, the health professionals to ensure that I'd be receiving more um definitive testing. So like I said, I was, I was, I flew from my community, my small community to Vancouver, British Columbia, and I had an MRI. That was my first test. And then I had um, follow-up of that. Of course, I had multiple other tests. I had the visual evoked potentials months later, and the, I remember having some bands around my arms and legs and I had a spinal tap. I mean, I, and I checked every box of every MS um, test that was in, existed in, in the nineties. And there wasn't, you know, things were still not at the stage of sophistication that they are now, but I checked every box and there was, there is no doubt <laughs> and was no doubt that I live with multiple sclerosis. <laughs> so I think many of our listeners might be curious to know, did you ever get to take that trip to Europe and use the Eurorail pass? Well, I, I didn't. I never took that trip to Europe. I ended up three years later, two years later, actually, buying a bus pass for the Greyhound bus, which doesn't even exist in Canada anymore, but it used to be a coast-to-coast transport system. And I bought a, a, a multi-month pass 
and I traveled across my own country. And so I still did the solo backpacking trip that I always wanted to experience. It just was at home. It wasn't, it wasn't in Europe. I did end up traveling to Europe with my children and my mother a few years ago for a research related trip, but it wasn't the same. It wasn't, it didn't have the same sort of, um, I, I guess, same sort of, uh, I mean, the sense of the sense of adventure, and it wasn't wasn't your that's dream right, trip, perhaps. Right. But yes. I think that's a that's a good lesson, though, is that we all learn with multiple sclerosis to adapt to our situations and make the best of what we're presented with. So that sounds like it to me. What you did. So, would you have any advice or suggestions for people who perhaps are having their own unusual symptoms and are on their own diagnosis journey, looking at MS as a possibility for their illnesses? Well, I think it's really important to be persistent and always be your best advocate. You know, there can be a cloak of fear that comes alongside any sort of anticipated health condition, but knowing is better better than not knowing. And I feel strongly that, you know, by my knowing what I was going to be living with, um, it really enabled me to navigate the world you know, despite the adversities I was going to face and despite any of the challenges that um, may come my way, I might MS has transitioned from relapsing remitting to secondary progressive. So I am, I am distinctly and extremely physically limited, but I still, you know, I'm, I'm an academic. I, you know, I, I really love the pursuit of knowledge and understanding. And again, like I said, I'm really finding ways to do that here and now within um, my evolved research trajectory and representation in the research community. Well, we're lucky to have you here. For those of you who are listening, this has been the MS Diagnosis Journey podcast. I'm your host, Laura Kolaskowski, and we've been talking to Dr. Rihanna Robinson, And her advice to us is be your best advocate, be persistent, and don't be afraid to navigate the world because it's still out there waiting for us, even if we have MS. Thank you, Dr. Robinson. Thank you, Laura. 